Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Enfit and Chief Medical Officer Tony Holohan sticks to cautious approach about antigen testing at today's Oroctus Committee meeting on transport. A coin toss is effectively the level of performance of the, of the test. That's the reality. But will this approach leave us lagging behind the rest of Europe when it comes to opening air travel? And the 8th of July set its date for Dublin-based South by-election. We're joined here in studio by candidates Lynn Boylan of Sinn Féin and Labour's Ivana Bacic as they set out their stalls when it comes to the key issues, especially the very hot topic of housing. And we'll be taking a look at the state of the parties as Irish Times' Ipsos MRBI poll reveals a very significant boost for Sinn Féin. Plus, later in the programme, are you full of fear and anxiety with thoughts of returning to the office and workplace? Author and clinical psychologist Dr Ian Robertson joins us. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Antigen testing has become a key issue to the arguments about reopening aviation and tourism. Earlier today, Enfit and Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Holohan addressed the concerns of politicians at an Eructus Committee meeting. Let's take a quick look. So specifically on the area of aviation, can I put the first question to you? Why are we not looking at antigen testing? We'd be more than willing to support if there was to be any validation study proposed to be carried out in that in that segment. We have no opposition whatsoever. What we can't do is simply start rolling out tests on the basis of people think they're a good idea without us supporting that with good quality scientific evidence generated from independent validation studies. Okay. That's our position. Many other countries are allowing antigen testing. We're not. So we have a better test and it's available. That's why we use it. Many other countries are not in that happy position. So this is a negative. What I did to produce this this morning is I just put buffer on this. And this is the reason that self-testing is not acceptable for any sort of test to enable approach. A coin toss is effectively the level of performance of the, of the test. That's the reality. Well, we're joined here in studio by Sinn Féin's Lynn Boylan and by Labour's Ivana Bacic via Skype with the Associate Professor with the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College and member of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group, Tomás Ryan, and also by Fianna Fáil TD, Cahill Crow. Tomás, if I can start with you, though, what do you make of the conservatism and caution been expressed by Enfit and Dr Tony Holohan, particularly when we have a situation where the Chief Scientific Officer and a group that he put together seems to be in favour of antigen testing? Well, the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group has been advocating that we're ready to use antigen testing in Ireland since last October. And we greatly welcome Professor Mark Ferguson's report and his efforts in, in bringing this to fruition. Unfortunately, since the conversation has been going on for so long, it's become this polarised dramatic discussion 
for something that really should be a very technical and banal discussion. We now seem to have this debate going on where some people are saying that antigen testing is a magic bullet, other people saying it's inappropriate. And really neither is true. It has an important role, but it's not a panacea. And the most important way I think of thinking about antigen testing is that it's a method to help with what we're already doing, but it's not a solution. And it's not something that is should be looked at as a way of giving individuals freedom. It's a way of using to help the population get lower cases so that we can all get more freedom as a group. But how could it be specifically used in relation to people traveling in and out of the country? I don't think that any test, whether it's PCR or antigen, when it's a single point in time test, is sufficient for keeping cases out of the country. Perhaps in the future when most of Europe is vaccinated, you may see a situation where we have sensible antigen screening for people traveling. But antigen testing can't be a substitute for the current situation where we have two tests, one before you leave and the other a few days after you arrive, because you can be carrying the virus, but will not test positive by either PCR or by antigen testing. Then, Boyle, what's the Sinn Féin position on this? Because earlier today, your health spokesman, David Cullinan, seemed to be implying do it on a basis of all flights between Ireland and the UK. But then, having seen the caution expressed by Dr Tony Holohan this afternoon, would you change that position? No, I suppose our spokesperson on transport today at the committee asked uh, Dr Holohan was he opposed to running a pilot scheme and to use that pilot scheme between Britain and Ireland. And there was no opposition. And certainly what Dr Tony Holohan was saying is NEFID aren't blocking a pilot scheme being rolled out. We've been calling for that pilot scheme since May um, and the Minister for Transport uh, has refused to engage with the aviation sector and has refused to engage in that, in that message. So that's what we're calling for is a pilot scheme. We're not saying to abandon the PCR test, but we should at least be considering a pilot. But would it be for all passengers between the two islands that they would all be tested before they could board a flight? Well, it's a pilot scheme, yeah, between British travel, British and Irish travel. Ivana Batchi, what do you make of that idea? Well, look, I think, first of all, just to commend Tomás and his colleagues in the Independent Scientific Advisory Group, I think they've been really playing a very important part in informing us all, both those of us in, in the Oireachtas and, and ge people generally across the country, about the way in which, the best ways in which we can take steps to tackle the awful scourge of COVID-19. So Tomás has uh, uh, tonight again really set out, I think very clearly, the role that antigen testing can play as part of a whole range of measures to tackle suppression, to, to help suppress the virus and to tackle transmission. And in fact, Alan Kelly Kelly, the Labour leader, and indeed Duncan Smith today on the Transport Committee, we've been, put, we've been putting forward, in fact, Alan's been putting forward since October, the case for using antigen testing, for deploying it as part of a range of measures, not as a substitute for PCR testing, which I think we all accept is a gold standard, as Tony Hoolan and others have said, but as part of a range of measures. And we've seen it used successfully in some sectors, for example, in the meat industry, and now we're seeing it the proposal that it would be used across third level colleges and possibly also in the childcare sector. So what about so, aviation then? So what about flights between these islands? Well, again, uh, Duncan Smith today at the committee did put that to the witnesses there, that it should be used as part of a range of measures. And I, th I think we're going to, I, I hope we're going to see that sensible approach being taken where it's used not as a panacea, but as one of a number of measures that can be used to help tackle su uh, and suppress the virus. Cahill Crow of Fianna Fáil, what do you think about the government's position in relation to this, given that there seems to be a reluctance to do anything that is not formally endorsed by Tony Holohan and Nedford. 
Well, in the first instance, the government commissioned a report on uh, the benefits and the usage of antigen. Uh, that was completed by Professor Ferguson, and it really recommended that this was something to embrace, to use. That has been ignored. There's been a divisive debate, uh, and it has been ignored within uh, NEFIT, and we've seen that even play out today. Most worryingly of all, uh, key NEFIT individuals today said that they hadn't even read that report, and I think that is, uh, that's pretty <laughs> bad now that they hadn't read a report which deals with what could be a second tier of testing in Ireland. What we've been saying all along is not to totally get, get rid of PCR testing. It is the gold standard. It's what most of the world is using. But 17 EU countries have embraced the reality that antigen testing is safe, it's cheap, um, it, it's quite easy to roll out. And the important point, I've been saying this for weeks, is if you take a PCR test three days before you travel, it's a little bit like getting breathalyzed before you go down to your local pub. What data is it really collecting? Okay, it could diagnose COVID, but is it really taking into account that hundreds of times a passenger, after being PCR tested, the hundreds of times they'll grasp a door handle, they'll flush a loo between their time of test and their time of departure. That's the kind of data I think we need to have. That can only be properly ascertained by uh, an antigen test, which is much cheaper than a PCR test, and it can happen much closer to the point of departure. Only then will passengers know that the people around them on the plane are COVID-free. That's how you get confidence back. That's how you get people well, Carl, back flying again into our skies. We saw the clip of Tony Holohan saying it's more like the flip of a coin. It's a 50-50 chance as to whether the antigen test will be correct or not. Well, what I would say, and I, I've made this point this evening to the Taoiseach, is that uh, Dr. Tony Holohan has uh, counterparts in other countries. I don't know whether they call them chief medical officers or what titles they have, but 17 of them have decided that there's enough validation, that there's enough scientific theory and test to stand over the, the, the use of antigen tests. It's been embraced across the European Union. The digital green certificate provides for either PCR testing and or antigen. We need to embrace it. We have four weeks to do it. And I have a little bit of good news tonight because I, I brought this up at the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party meeting uh, and colleagues support it. But in particular, the Taoiseach said, uh, you know, he's open to this being looked at as a possibility. Uh, and so is Minister Stephen Donnelly. This has to be looked at. We're looking at concerts. Matches have been trialled. And Dr. Tony Holland said today that he's willing to run some trial events. And I, I, I must correct uh, Deputy uh, uh, the candidate Lynn Boylan because it was actually Fianna Fáil proposed that we would trial it on a flight, uh, a low-carrying flight in and out of the UK. You would look at a small cohort of passengers and instead of putting a 120, 150 euro PCR test on them, you would actually look at a 5 to 10 euro antigen test. And let's look at the realm of science, uh, which we've all become accustomed to over the last 15 months. That should be the metric in terms of getting people safely back at their place. Okay, well, look, maybe we go back to Tomás Reinan. That, that idea of test flights with 5 to 10 euro antigen tests, do you think would that work? Even if the antigen test is picking up 60% of people that are positive and the other 40% are don't knows, I don't particularly want to sit on a flight where 40% of people are don't knows. I think the issue of antigen testing, giving an immediate result of whether someone is very infectious, can be very useful for when you're getting on the plane, but it also illustrates that you need at least two tests separated by a few days. And if you're going to have two tests separated by a few days, it makes sense that one of them should be a PCR test. And the antigen tests work. The good ones do work fine, but it's not about the test quality. It's about how you use them and how we use antigen tests it needs to be informed by public health expertise. Going forward in Ireland, we should see antigen tests being used for helping 
public health physicians deal with outbreaks for serial testing in workplaces, such as meat plants and universities. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to use it as an individual, it gives you advance notice while you're waiting for a PCR test. It lets you warn your family and your friends that they may need to self-isolate themselves. That has a role, but it is not a reason to go to a social event. It is not a reason to think that you're safe to go to a concert or anything like that. Tomás, how much worry would you have about what they're calling operator error, that if people do it for themselves, they just won't do it correctly? I think that's a red herring. I think that with proper public communication, people can do things very well. We don't worry about that type of thing with face masks. We don't worry about that type of thing with contraceptives. I think communication is key there. Are worrying about gin and tonics and butter as well, as I think came up today at the Oireachtas <laughs> Committee in relation to that. OK, so we had... The, is this all going to be redundant very quickly, though, perhaps, then, given the success of the vaccination rollout, that the majority of people who would be looking to fly in any case will be vaccinated? Well, you'd hope so. I mean, and, and again, uh, Tony O'Hullan at the committee was saying we are moving to a situation where we're going to be looking at a, a return to travel because we are vaccinating people, but we're not there yet. Do you know what I mean? And we need to hear more from the government about how they're going to roll out that digital, the green cert, but also how they're going to, I suppose, support the aviation sector to get back. But we are moving to a situation, I suppose, while also remaining cautious and, and doing everything under public health guidance, like Tony Hoolan is saying, there is going to be a point in the near future where we are going to be at least able to travel again. What do you want for the aviation sector? How many of the flights that used to run before COVID do you want to see up and running again as quickly as possible? I think we have to look at a strategy for the aviation sector. I mean, we have to be realistic here. Ireland is an island. So regardless of putting tourism aside, we have to have connectivity on the island of Ireland. Um, so that's the reality. We're not part of mainland Europe. We are an island nation. Ivana Bacic, how quickly do you want to see all the flights restored? I think we'll have to proceed cautiously for sure. There is a, a real need for a support package for aviation. Just thinking of all of those who are facing prospect of job losses, the story with Stobart just this week. So I, I think there's clearly a need for strong support, but I don't think Sorry, we're going to go support? back. Because there's an enormous amount of money required here. Aer Lingus has already got 150 million in loans, is looking for more. Would you give them more money, even though they're owned by a major international private company? Would you give the likes of Ryanair, which is still a very wealthy company, money. I think what we need to look at is those who are employed within the sector and particularly those who are facing job losses or who have been on short-term work because of the public health restrictions. I don't think we're close yet to seeing that sort of full return you talk about, Matt, to uh, so many flights. But certainly as the vaccination programme accelerates and I'm due my second jab tomorrow night, so I'm delighted about that. And I mean, we're seeing so many more people uh, now queuing up to get their vaccines. We have a very high take of vaccines here and certainly as the digital green cert becomes agreed and we see decisions made about antigen testing or PCR testing at EU level, I think we are going to see a cautious reopening of aviation. But, you know, I suppose we still have to remember internationally so many countries that don't have the same access to vaccines that we have, huge issues around uh, global lack of global solidarity on this and the need to ensure that, uh, that we are enabling other countries beyond the EU to have access to vaccines as well. So I think that's the sort of thing that we also need to look at when we're talking about aviation, that it's not just with, between Britain and Ireland or indeed within the EU, that of course we're talking about the international uh, uh, framework or the international structures for aviation. Carl, we've mentioned many of the uses for antigen testing, but there are potentially more for things like sports events. 
Is there again enough ambition in government in relation to that? For having, for example, Derry and Offaly playing in Croke Park on Saturday in the National Football League Division 3 decider. Two and a half thousand people inside in Croke Park and no antigen testing. Is that ambitious enough? So I think what we saw last weekend was dipping the toe in the water. We have to look at where we came from. Just a few weeks ago, people weren't able to go beyond two kilometres in the house. Then it was five kilometres. Then inter-county travel. Uh, there weren't matches being played. Now we can go to them. I agree. We would love to see way more people back in it. But we've only been dipping our toe into the water. And so far, so good. It has proven to be safe. It's an outdoor event. Um, and I want to see more and more people going to it. There's also some discrepancies. We saw a Leinster game. I probably have a little bit of a bias against Leinster as a Munster man, but we saw a large crowd going to that and far less people will be in Turles this weekend. So I think we need to look on a pro rata basis how much capacity ordinarily is in a sports ground, work out a square footage and just say, do you know what, that's your capacity for the coming months uh, and run off these games as, 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 you know, it's very cathartic, I think, for people who've been pretty much locked up in their homes to be able to go down, uh, put on their team colours, shout for their county, their province, uh, and we need to get to that. But there have been huge gains. And you know what? We're within only a matter of weeks now of having well upwards of 80% of our population vaccinated. We're going to have a good summer. It's going to be a summer of staycations. But as a spokesperson in aviation, I also hope to some people fly out of Shannon and our other airports. We do need to reconnect internationally as well this summer. And antigen is important, not just in sports or going to matches, but it will, it will be important, I believe, as well, as a feature of a resumption of international travel. Tomás, a lot of us are looking enviously at the matches going on in the Euro 2020 and wondering when we can have at least similar crowds for our games, such as the All-Ireland Finals in August. Is that a potential? Could antigen testing play a role in that? And even for something like the electric picnic, which has now been put back to the end of September in an effort to get as many people in as possible. Again, I think antigen testing plays a minor role. Our strongest tool right now is vaccination. And I look with envy in Israel. And it's really useful to compare how different countries with high levels of vaccination are doing. And Israel is outperforming the experiences of Canada, Chile, and the United Kingdom, even though they all have very high levels of vaccination. And the reason for that is that Israel is managing inward travel to its country very carefully. If we don't manage inward travel as we're coming out over the summer, then we're still going to find ourselves with high case numbers and we risk importing a lot of the Delta variant that was first identified in India, which risks increasing our hospitalization rate very much and putting us all back in restrictions. So we need to use the vaccines and use the enviable high take up of vaccines that we're going to have in Ireland to get ourselves back to normality by using the vaccines to get us to low case numbers. Ivana, you were just saying that you're in an unfortunate position of getting your second dose of vaccine tomorrow. However, there are lots of people older than you and healthcare workers who have been waiting now 12 plus weeks in relation to a second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Should they be given something else, even though that has been a decision by the government not to give them a second dose of something else? Well, I'm, I'm so glad you said it, Matt, because this is something that's being raised with us every night as we are out canvassing across Dublin Bay South. Um, Alan Kelly's been raising it in the Dáil now for some time because there's 
is such an inequity. I mean, as Tomas has said, and as I've said, we do have an enviably high take-up rate of vaccination here. And the vaccine programme has been so successful and the age cohorts have worked so well and people see the, the rationale behind them. But where we are seeing, as I say, this in inequity, this anomalous situation is for people who got AstraZeneca first. At first, of course, it was a 16-week gap. And I know people who had to wait 16 weeks for the second, mostly healthcare workers. But now we're seeing people in their 60s who are who are told who were told initially there would be a 12-week gap. And as you say, that has meant that others that are younger are now getting a second jab before them. So, so can I just say this, that I'm glad to say that in response to Alan Kelly's questioning in the doll and it being raised by others, that there have been indications from the government that this will now be, uh, the, the, the gap between the two will be curtailed, that there will now, I think they're saying, eight weeks and that everyone will be done by the 19th then, of July. what about using if necessary, a different If plan. necessary, a second, a, sec a different dose. We've asked that that, that be explored. Um, obviously but it's it been rejected, to, it seems, well, it, by yeah, the Minister and, of Health. But we would like to see the rationale for that. If there is a, like, so long as there's not a public health issue around giving it. But from what I've heard from experts, they're saying that actually a, a, a second dose of a Pfizer after getting a first dose of AstraZeneca actually boosts your immune uh, resistance to COVID. Very briefly, Cahill, do you think should the government be offering people a second dose of something else rather than making them wait for AstraZeneca? I think it should certainly be in the mix, but uh, just there's been nothing mean-spirited about this. Everything here has been guided by science, and it, it's all about getting to the quickest point of mass vaccination that we possibly can. And you know what? We're exceeding where we expect it to be, despite having many bumps along the road. Uh, and I'm on the Raptors Health Committee. We've listened to many experts come in. Uh, the gap, shortening it is one thing, but also having a mixture of vaccines. I think the scientific proof, both in Ireland and abroad, is that that can work and can be very effective. Okay. But we're getting to a very good point. But we've also heard some positivity as well today that there will be, uh, it'll be a more normal school or college year, I should say, for people returning in the autumn. Yes, people indeed. are going to start feeling more okay, normal. Carl, um, I'm going to have life, to leave it there. That's with vaccines. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Tomás Ryan and Cahill Crow for joining us. Our studio panel, though, is staying with us because after the break, the Dublin-based South by-election is now officially underway and our studio panel will be setting out their campaigns on how they tackle one of the key issues facing many voters, housing. Stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
Welcome back. Now, the 8th of July has been confirmed for the Dublin Bay South by-election following Fine Gael's Owen Murphy's departure from politics. Now, we're joined tonight by two candidates, Lynn Boylan of Sinn Féin and Ivana Batchik of the Labour Party, both senators. Ivana, if I could start with you. Okay. A decade ago, Labour won two out of the four seats in its constituency. Now, Labour, in the latest Irish Times poll tonight, 3% of the vote nationally, but only 3% in Dublin. Does this mean you're going to have to run a personalised campaign, almost ignoring your membership of Labour if you're to have any chance of having a run in this constituency? Well, first of all, the uh, national opinion polls don't tend to be borne out in by-election results. And I think any political observer looking at by-elections over the last 10 or 20 years in Ireland would have seen that. At by -elections, Which is why I mentioned Dublin, 3% for Labour as well. Well, Dublin Bay South, however, is where the by-election is being held. And what we're going to see in my home constituency is, I think, um, very particular issues that apply locally. And we've seen that in different by-elections over the years. We've seen governments, for example, even where they're doing very well in opinion polls nationally, or even in Dublin, tending to lose by-elections in specific constituencies. Because quite frequently, what voters are looking at is issues that are more local to them, or they're, or they're looking more specifically at the individual candidates' parties are running. So I think that's the pattern we've tended to see in by-elections. So we're not perturbed by the national polls. Obviously, we like to see Labour do better in the national polls, but certainly the response we're getting on the doors, and we've been out canvassing now for some weeks, the response we're getting is far above what's, what's reflected in the polls. So, so I, think, I think we're going to see a very different result in this by-election. Lynn, of course, the Irish Times poll has Sinn Féin at a record high of 31% nationally, even better in Dublin, 34%. But how much pressure does that put on you personally to actually match and reach those figures for your own personal political career? Well, I think polls, opinion polls are a, a snapshot in time, but also I think Dublin Bay South, everybody would accept the Dublin Bay South. This would be a, a David and Goliath campaign for Sinn Féin. It is seen as Fine Gael heartland. Um, that's not to say that we can You can't. have a higher opinion poll rating in Dublin than Fine Gael significantly. You also have a sitting TD in the constituency. Are you not confident that you should be the favourites based on those figures? That's the favourite. No, as I said, we, we don't underestimate the, the constituency that Dublin Bay South is, which is seen as a, as a very strong constituency for Fine Gael. But that's not to say that Sinn Féin taking a second seat uh, in that constituency is impossible. It absolutely isn't. And what we're saying to people is this is a by-election. By-elections are very different to general elections. This is an opportunity for you. If you're not happy with the status quo, if you're not happy with the government, who is the best candidate to send the strongest possible message to the government that you want them to change course? And we believe that's a Sinn Féin. If you were to win this seat, will you guarantee that you will run again in the same constituency in the next election, that yourself and Chris Andrews will try and win two seats in the next election rather than going somewhere else? Well, I have to win one election first, I'm asked. No, I Do think it's I mean? a fair, <laughs> question. Don't, don't it a fair question to ask, though, if people are going to put you into the doll to represent Dublin Bay South, that they would feel that you would stick around and be available to them in the general election yeah, and, when and, it comes. And I represented Dublin Bay South as an MEP for five years and worked very hard with Chris Andrews in communities uh, during that five years and when there's if if I was to be elected you would have to then look as a general election and look at the numbers but what I'm saying is this is a by-election I'm asking the people of Dublin Bay South to put their faith in me to send that very strong message to government um, but I'm not going to make any future predictions on future elections because I have to you have to win this election and no politician would be that foolhardy. Let's go to the issues which are national issues as well as local issues mm -hmm. but when you're canvassing how much interest is there, as the media would suggest, in housing and rents as being the particular biggest issue for the country? Is that the way for this constituency? 
certainly we're hearing concerns about affordable housing, concerns about rents increases, concerns about security for people renting right across the constituency. And even from people who themselves are secure in their own homes, they're concerned about their children being able to afford homes or they're concerned about the, they're concerned about the future for uh, their own families. And so that's really a huge issue in the constituency. And I do think this is about change. I think what people are so looking... How do you address that? How do you create a situation where the children of those living in this constituency are going to have an opportunity to live in their own homes there in the future? Well, the first thing is we need to move away from the current government's reliance on private developers and on the market to deliver, to de deliver homes because that has patently failed. So what we're putting forward is a different vision, a Labour, social democratic and left of centre vision to put the state back in the centre stage in delivering housing on public land and homes on public land. And that's the key issue is to in ensure an increase How in How much supply. public land is there in the constituency well, and how many houses could you provide on it? Well, we put forward last last year in the general election, a manifesto commitment to deliver 80,000 houses over five years across the country, specifically in Dublin Bay South. We had left in 2016, when Labour left office, a plan in place there to develop the Irish glass bottle site at Pool Beg. As you know, that has been five, five years on, very sadly, not one home built. In fact, just looking at it from the top of the Clannagail Club in, in, uh, in uh, Irishtown the other day, it's still just a, an absolute greenfield site. It's appalling. That was supposed to deliver 3,800 units, including eight or 900 social and affordable units. There was a deal was supposed to be done to deliver that through public ownership in 2019. It fell through. It's now in the hands of private developers, the Ronan Group. And I've met with the Local Housing Action Group and they're very concerned, actually, that the Ronan Group will not deliver the eight or 900 social and okay. affordable Lynn, units. And that will be a huge... Matt, that's where we should have seen is your public housing. in any public way really housing. different I, from I, what I, Labour is suggesting? No, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that Ivana brought up the, the, the pool bag glass bottle site because she's right. It is. It's probably the last huge uh, piece of land that will be developed within the city. And what people need to know about the Poolbeg site and the fact that it's now with the Johnny Ronan group is that NAMA went to the minister, Owen Murphy at the time, and said, we are prepared to offer you this land at a discount. And the department refused to fund Dublin City Council to, to build on that land directly. We now have a situation where Johnny the Johnny Ronan group paid we do, anywhere up to twice the value of the land. He's now going to, in order for him to make his money back, he's going to have to... It's been reported that they paid about 250 million, but if that's the price, that means that automatically the prices for houses and apartments goes up. A absolutely, and, and Dublin City Council have said that they cannot, they, ha they don't have an agreement yet around the, what is the affordable cost of the housing. So the affordable cost could be anything up to 500,000, so that's not affordable for anybody, and that the council are going to be buying that. So what we need to hear from... Um, uh, the government now is how are they going to ensure that affordable houses are built on the pool bag site so that the local communities can stay in their community and one of the things that we're saying is jo the Johnny Ronan group will benefit from a 30 million uh, grant fund um, that's critical to that development and what we're saying is that the Minister for Transport and the Minister for Housing needs to go in and really negotiate very hard okay. with the Johnny Rowan group and say you're not getting Obviously, this money an unless need. you provide these houses at an affordable price. There's an enormous need for additional supply but in the absence of the immediate creation of additional supply how are you going to stop the massive surge in house prices not just there but in the whole country and also rising rents? 
Well, I suppose one of the things, if you deal with the rising rents, we want a rent freeze for three years. And then what Sinn Féin's policies are is to give a rent reduction by giving a one, one month's rent back as a tax How rebate. is that going to help supply? Well, that's going to just reduce the cost of rent for the people who are in there. And what about everybody and else? And then in supply, we've consistently said that you need to double the capital investment in, so in social and affordable housing. And now the ESRI have said the same and the IMF have said the same, hardly radical bodies. That's what we need to be doing, double capital investment. How would you deal with the rental situation? Well, we are also proposing a three-year rent freeze, but we're also proposing beyond that that uh, we would tackle specifically this issue about speculator-driven inflation of house prices through bringing in legislation to implement the Kenny Report recommendation from 1973. And in fact, we brought forward that legislation this week. It was being debated in the Dáil yesterday. Uh, and that would have a crucial impact on calming this uh, rapid inflation, this sort of cowboy speculation that we're seeing on the price of land, which has been so uh, so significant in terms of stymieing development uh, by the public sector on the Irish glass bottle site. But we're calling on terms of renters and protection for renters, that's crucial. We need to see a rent freeze and we also need to see security of tenure built in. Okay, this is known as a Green Party constituency with Eamon Ryan, the party leader, having taken 22% of the vote last time round. What are you both, I put it each of you briefly, going to propose in relation to climate action for the constituency, particularly with things like Bus Connects? Well, for, first thing, I have a long track record on, on climate justice issues. I was on the first board of Friends of the Earth Ireland when they set up here and I introduced the first climate protection bill in the Shannon in 2007 when I was first elected. So I have a passionate interest in environmental issues. As a sea swimmer, I've been working on developing a plan for Dublin Bay to enhance water quality and enhance that amazing amenity on our doorstep in our community in Dublin Bay South. And that's a huge issue in terms of climate as well. And on transport, Absolutely, we're working with local communities on bus connect projects and on do cycling infrastructure. Like the idea of giving so much space over to bus corridors at the expense of cars. What's your position on that? I want to see investment in public transport and cycling infrastructure. And I want to see that done in such a way that we see proper corridors into the city centre so people don't have to use their cars. Too much reliance on private cars because there aren't seen as viable alternatives and we need to move away from Lynn, them. what's your position on those no, issues? Absolutely, we need to invest uh, very heavily in public transport because that's the one of the, like our, our carbon emissions uh, is agriculture, public transport and housing. So public transport is one of the easy fixes that we can really address our, our emissions. So we do need to invest much greater uh, funding into public transport. We need to work with communities around rolling out that public transport. In fact, I'm meeting the NTA tomorrow to get an update on the Bus Connect and the Metrolink proposals. I think that when you work with communities and, and Bus Connect across the city, uh, have been very good at addressing a lot of the concerns that uh, the communities have. One of the key things about Bus Connects would be the interchanges because we're asking people, I suppose, to change buses more often. So we need to make sure that those interchanges are accessible for people with disabilities, that they're not going to be left waiting for buses. We need to make sure that they're safe for women so that they're well lit and that there's regular uh, times of when the bus is going to come for that connection. You have buses. very similar views, both of you, on many issues. Lynn, would you recommend to your Sinn Féin voters that they give a number two to Ivana and, and Labour Party in the event if you weren't to get enough votes to get the government out? And would you ask her to give number twos to Sinn Féin? What I'd be asking people on the, on the doors is to vote for myself, number one, and to then... Uh, 
to vote left down the, the ballot sheet and to not be giving votes to the government parties because the government parties are failing to deliver on housing. And that would include Ivana maybe as a number two? And I leave it up to people to decide who they give their preferences to. What about you? To. Would the Labour Party like second votes from Sinn Féin in the event that perhaps you were depending on transfers to beat a government candidate? Well, obviously our key message in the constituency is if you want change, vote Labour. Vote for a left-wing representative. Vote for somebody whose voice is missing currently. We're missing in a constituency with a strong progressive and Labour tradition. We're missing a Labour voice but Would you be table. happy to tell your voters, give a number two to Sinn Féin, to look to Sinn Féin to give the number twos to Labour? I never tell anyone what way to vote other than asking for a vote for Labour for a number one, but I will always do what but I do. But the votes from but, maybe transfers I, could be essential in winning this vote. That's what I always do is I always transfer to Green and centre-left parties and I'll continue to do that. Would you regard Sinn Féin as a Green or centre-left party? I think Sinn Féin have many policies that are close to left-wing policies and many that are more populist. I think Labour as a party of the left is clearly in the social democratic and socialist tradition and the party of the trade union movement and that's the tradition I'm proud okay. to belong to. Thank you very much. The other candidates standing so far in the Dublin-based out by election are James Gagan for Fine Gael, Deirdre Conroy for Fianna Fáil, Claire Byrne for the Green Party, Sarah Durkin for the Social Democrats, Bridget Purcell for People Before Profit Solidarity, Mairead Tobin for A2, Justin Barrett of the National Party, Renewers Jackie Gilburn and Independents Peter Dooley and Mannix Flynn. The deadline for nominations is next Thursday. So we're going to leave it there. Our thanks to Lynn Boylan and Ivana Batchik for joining us. After the break, are PUP payments disincentivising a return to work? And Dr Ian Robertson on how to handle any fears and anxieties you may have when it comes to returning to the workplace. Welcome back. Now, the government has signalled a possible return to the workplaces in August. But will there be a real sense of fear and anxiety about the physical return for some? We're joined here in studio by Dr Ian Robertson, clinical psychologist, neuroscientist and author of the new book, How Confidence Works. But first, we're joined via Skype by the chief executive of ISME, Neil MacDonald. Neil, I believe you feel there's a complete lack of clarity around this. Why is that? Yeah, well, Matt, it's it's as a result of feedback we've had from employers since the revised work safety protocol has been issued by the Department of Enterprise. Um, there, there is an entire absence of clarity on whether um, employers can uh, ascertain the vaccination status of employees. And the result of this is, and, and we are seeing it on the calls that we're getting, um, that that there are staff who are saying to their employers, um, I don't intend, I don't want to get uh, a vaccination for whatever reason. And then there are other people who are saying, I refuse to work with a person who's unvaccinated. And the situation we're left with is there is a complete absence of clarity for those employers. And they are genuinely concerned as to what action by one or other of the state authorities or the legal profession they may be leaving themselves open to. Yeah, are there GDPR issues, insurance issues, health and safety? What things do you want specifically clarified? Well, we don't believe that there are any GDPR issues involved. Um, the, the GDPR makes explicit exclusions uh, from, the, uh, fr from the privacy protocols in respect of protection of life or limb. There possibly are insurance implications. Uh, unfortunately, there possibly are safety, health and welfare at work 
Act uh, issues. And these are the things that the, the department, we believe, could address with, with a very simple statement or statements of what would be required. Because obviously, this is not going to be a one-size-fits-all. There are certain workplaces uh, which have worked very happily throughout the pandemic with substantial numbers of staff working from home. And that's not the ones we're talking about. We're talking about uh, retail, grooming, hospitality settings where it may not be possible to maintain adequate social distancing. Neil, I want to ask you about comments you made today in front of an Oireachtas committee in relation to the pandemic unemployment payment, which has been so important to many people in protecting their income or mitigating the loss when they've been put out of work through no fault of their own. It is due to be start being tapered in September, but you want that to happen faster and more severely. Why so? It, it is important to say that we... We named sectors for that, Matt. So what has been reported, unfortunately, and, and it was, uh, uh, if, if I could be diplomatic and say it was a rather lively hearing, but we were very specific about those sectors where this is an issue. And obviously there are other sectors. I mean, I was in town today uh, in Kildare Street and there was a, a pilot's demonstration. So aviation obviously severely affected uh, we still have wet pubs not back in operation. We still have entertainment and the arts not fully back. So we have said that this needs to be a sector-specific solution. But what we are very clear about, and uh, you, you know, we have said there, that there's a, an element of denial here uh, by certain public representatives of, on, on this matter. There are areas that are back to... Uh, you know, substantial levels of activity in agriculture, hospitality, grooming and accommodation, and they are unable to get people over the age of 18. And they're unable to get them because those people choose to remain on the pub and not work, or they're choosing to remain on the pub and operate in the grey economy. Either way, uh, we need to fiscally encourage those people to get back to work now. Yeah, but Neil, does not suggest that the issue is underpayment of people, a certain degree of labour exploitation, that if employers were to pay a fairer living wage, you wouldn't have that issue of people wanting to stay on the pandemic unemployment payment? I don't agree, uh, Matt. I mean, I this is, is somewhat of a cliched thing, you know, if, if you paid people the living wage, uh, if you paid people, I mean, we had calls from people for up to 15 euros an hour. Uh, the, the issue in Ireland is not low wages. It's the extremely high cost of living. We've made separate proposals to the Minister for Social Protection and to the Minister for Finance on how we address what we call the jobs kill zone, that income banned between 18,000 euros per annum and 30,000 30, euros per annum, where people are actively incentivized by the state not to work. We cannot address that by simply bidding up the cost of the, the, the hourly wage in, in low-skilled or unskilled sectors, because employers simply will not take up that labour. Neil MacDonald, thank you very much for joining us here on the show. Thank you, Matt. Now we're joined in studio by clinical psychologist, neuroscientist and author of the new book, How Confidence Works, Professor Ian Robertson. Ian, thank Hello, you very Matt. much for joining us. I'm sure there are plenty of people who have been working on the front line and in other jobs in their office or workplace over the last 16 months who might have relatively little sympathy with those who have been working from home. But are there real issues and concerns to be had about the readjustment for people who may be going back into the office or workplace? 
Yeah, I always think of what it felt like as a child after a long summer holiday, going back to school and some kids would be excited, but so quite a lot of kids would be kind of nervous, they'd be a kind of nervousness about, because we're creatures of habit. And so I'd say half the workforce at least are thinking, do I really want to go back on the bus or onto the car or onto the train? And do I really want to go back into that bear pit? Because some workplaces are bear pits, some some are not, obviously. Um, and so there'll, there'll be a good proportion of people who... And those are for issues completely unrelated to COVID. So not just the fear of perhaps contracting the virus in going somewhere. Yeah. It's just the normal day-to-day -day workplace issues that they've been able to avoid. Yeah, exactly, time. exactly. I mean, the COVID, I'm assuming everyone will be vaccinated by the end of the summer. And so I'm, I'm kind of setting that aside even though there might be other worries. But I'm just talking about changes to our lifestyle because we are creatures of habit. And if we're, so, so after a year and a half at home, we're actually having to do something quite new. It's not two months summer holiday or three months summer holiday. It's a year and a half of a completely different um, way of life. And so there'll be, inevitably, there'll be probably a million people or half a million people who are feeling quite anxious. And then how much responsibility falls to the employer to deal appropriately and sensitively with that? Well, I think, you see, I think there's an opportunity here both for the individual and the employer because it's very difficult to shake people out of their, their habits once they're established. When, when I first came to Trinity you know, 21 years ago, someone gave me the advice, you know, you've, you've got about a couple of months or, or six months maximum to have as a new leader coming in to make changes. After the, you get familiar, people get familiar with you, you won't be able to make these changes. And that's true also for people going back, maybe to a workplace where maybe there were relationships or things going on that they didn't particularly weren't to their taste. There's an opportunity now, it's, it's like a plasticity in the system that will only last for a couple of weeks or maybe a month after they go back where they can maybe have the opportunity if they feel confident to do this, to, to, to make changes in their workplace that are better for them and maybe better for other people as well. How much of that is going to involve what they're calling the blended workplace, that part of the work will be done in the office, part of it will be done at home? Yeah, and that's going to suit, I'd say the majority of people, that's going to really suit them um, to, to do that. Um, I think the risk, <laughs> the risk will be if you have some people who are mainly at home and some people are mainly in the office, then the way the human brain works in terms of in-groups and out-groups would be very difficult to avoid as uh, potentially quite damaging group dynamics developing then. So I think it's going to have to... If I was an employer um, bringing people coming back, I'd want to have a lot of discussions and, and, and small group discussions with people about how they'd like to do things. Does that not sound like a lot of meetings about meetings? Yeah. One of the criticisms that has been brought up in international surveys about the lockdown is that... There's been an awful lot more meetings. People almost started justifying the fact that people were at working at home by having more lengthy Zoom calls, which haven't suited many people at all. Yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of that. It's very interesting. My own experience working remotely has been the Zoom calls, meetings don't bleed beyond the, the, the half hour or, or hour. That 40 minutes, Whatever it is. And, you know, there's much less of the kind of, chat and you know people hanging about in a meeting for longer i i personally think and i think there's other surveys suggesting people are working a bit harder at home on average so i think that um uh, I, I think i think there are advantages to the to, to that uh, 
But don't many organisations and people revert to the norm? It's not going to be the case that rather than planning to make changes, when they get back into the office, they just start doing things the way they always used to do. But that's precisely right. We are creatures of habit and even old habits that we haven't um, practised for a year and a half will reinstate themselves if the circumstances and the relationships and the people are the same. So that's why there's a relatively brief window of opportunity, of plasticity in the system to, 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 to actually say, well, how were we running things? Uh, you know, or could it be that ultimately it's organisations that are paying a lot of money for commercial space will just decide to bring as many people in to justify the money they're spending and to hell with the mental well-being of the staff? Yeah, they might do that, but it depends on the organisation, depends on the kinds of tasks. Because we know that people who... We, we, we get group IQ, we get smarter groups are groups that function well together, whereas a, a relatively equal amount of talking. So ju just if you, okay, if you have a kind of factory hen approach to your employees, yeah, that you, what you say is probably true. But if there's any kind of creativity or, or problem solving required of your groups, then it really, with this month's period, invest, it would, could do some investment of time. Okay, it seems like the, there is an opportunity there for many companies and employees to grasp. That is all we have time for tonight. Our thanks to Professor Ian Robertson for joining us. I'll be back on the radio today FM tomorrow and back here tomorrow night at the time of 10 o'clock. Don't forget that the Tonight Show is also available as a podcast wherever you subscribe. So thanks for watching and a very good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.